This is the Foot in the Box podcast for the week of Monday, July 18th. And now, please rise for the singing of our Hello and welcome to episode 59 of the A Foot in the Box podcast. My name is Peter Elliott. And I'm Paul Elliott. We are twin brothers coming to you from Champaign, Illinois. I am a Cubs fan. Paul's a White Sox fan. Paul, did you enjoy your all-star break? I did, yeah. And unlike um, most Americans, I actually watched the game. <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, I enjoyed Enjoyed the home run derby. Our live stream of it was of course much more fun than I thought it would be. Um, it was it was a blast. We'll get into uh, more of both of those in a little bit. Uh, first, uh, thanks to Nelly for our intro song. Our Nelly fun fact this week: I found an interview he did with Page Two at ESPN. Remember oh, Page that? Two. Remember those back in the yeah. day? R.I.P. Um, so one of the questions overall it was a pretty terrible article or terrible interview. Uh, but one of the questions was, if you could have one superpower, the strength of 100 men, invisibility, or the ability to fly, which one would you choose and why? Run through those again. Uh, the strength of 100 men, invisibility, or the ability to fly. Which would you choose? I'd probably go fly. I think I'd do invisibility. Yeah. Be either One of those two. Uh, so Nelly said, probably invisibility. I'm not too keen on flying. It's not my bag. Strength of 100 men, I'd probably just get mad and hurt somebody and, and end up in jail. I think invisibility would probably be the best thing. I could be like, you know what? Let me just see what these folks are talking about over over here. Then you could sneak into the Rams cheerleaders locker room. You're kidding. No, that's what he said. Oh, wow. Yeah, I feel like the invisibility is too tempting to do weird stuff. So you're safeguarding yourself? Safeguarding myself, yeah. Yeah, so that's Nelly. Uh, all right, so moving on to baseball. Uh, Paul, what are your all-star game thoughts? Uh, American League won 4-2. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's now 11 out of 14 since uh, the game started to actually count yeah. towards something. Domination. Uh, yeah, I don't really have many original all-star game thoughts. I think it's ridiculous like everyone that um, the game means something. Uh, I don't think it should dictate home field advantage. Um, like I said, I did watch it, but I don't even find it that intriguing. Um, I don't know what, do you have some original all-star game thoughts? Uh, I finally come around to the idea that, uh, it's stupid to, uh, determine home field advantage in the world series on it. Um, I think for a while I kind of bought into the, um, argument that, you know, it means something, uh, it'll, Increase viewership that way. It'll, the players and managers will, will play and manage differently. But I think what finally won me over to this to the side of most baseball fans and thinking that it's stupid is that the game isn't played any differently. It's not managed any differently. You still have, uh, you know, Adam Duvall coming up in big situations, or um, I think uh, Diaz from the Cardinals struck out mm-hmm. big spot in the eighth inning. Um, so you just don't have the best players playing late in the game. Managers still try to get everybody in. And the ratings are terrible, so yeah. it's not doing not doing what it's supposed to to be doing, and uh, it presents Manfred an opportunity to distance himself from C League, 
and um, kind of have a big PR win for baseball, which mm-hmm. is rare. Because um, originally, the, the whole thing originated because the 2002 All-Star Game ended in a tie, and everyone freaked out. Uh, so starting in 2003, they were just going to do like a two-year trial. And 2003 was actually um, at US Cellular. Yeah. Uh, so it was just going to be a two-year thing, and then they just have kept mm-hmm. extending it. So it wasn't even set up to be this... Um, it's long-term thing. So I think it's time to pull the plug on it. Um, yeah, for those that didn't see, it averaged uh, 8.7 million viewers, which uh, was worse than America's Got Talent. Mm-hmm. I've never watched America's Got Talent. I uh, went online this morning and watched a little bit of the episode that beat the All-Star game, yeah. and it's pretty boring. The uh, The judge panel includes Simon Cowell. Okay. I didn't realize that. And Howie Mandel. Okay. Um, so that's pretty brutal getting beat out by America's got talent and, uh, it's the worst in 50 years. Yeah. Never before had it been lower than 10 million. Yeah. It's just, I mean, I don't understand the reasoning. It's like not working the way you're doing it. So Mm -hmm. switch it up. But what's somewhat encouraging, uh, is that other all-star game type events are bad too. So even though it was at 8.7, that's still better than, um, the pro bowl, um, which is right around, it's 7.9 million. So, um, just about a, uh, a million better. And then the NBA all-star game is 7.6. So still better than those. It just seems like in general, all-star game type events aren't as popular as they used to be. Yeah. Yeah. I think, uh, if you made the game, um, just an exhibition and then, you know, really sought to make the production a cool thing, you know, bring in interesting guests, you kind of try to mix it with like celebrity softball, like, Mm -hmm. you know, have fun with it. Um, have it be more interactive, that sort of thing. Um, but even my issue is, you know, branding it as the midsummer classic. If you go that route, I feel like we just need to admit that it is a fun, lighthearted sure. exhibition type of moment. It's not this grand stage where Kevin Costner is giving this dramatic <laughs> intro. It's uh, it's just an exhibition game. And yeah. if you like baseball, you might tune in and you might not, if you have something going on, like we don't, we don't need to freak out when ratings are bad if we treat it like that. Exactly. So everyone talks about how they hate the All-Star game and they um, aren't going to watch. And then after the game happens, everyone freaks out because no one watched. Right, yeah. It's a funny uh, kind of narrative there. Um, and I think it would be fun if, you know, if you could get the best players to, like, just play baseball for fun against each other. I think that could be fun. It could be kind of a midsummer classic, but with contracts – and uh, injuries, and like mm-hmm. that's never going to happen again. Um, you know, it would be fun if you could if you could convince them. No, it's just like you know playing against kids uh, growing up. But it's like it's never going to be that. Right. So you might as well, uh, you know, just have fun with it. Mm-hmm. The home run derby. Speaking of fun, uh, that was that was fun to watch. Uh, Giancarlo Stanton beat Todd Frazier. Uh, hit a lot of long home runs. Um, Paul, I heard a lot of buzz over two different things from the Home Run Derby. First is that Chris Berman's terrible. Mm-hmm. I think it was his last year doing it. Is it really? I, I didn't see that. So. Um, and uh, he had a quote that got a lot of uh, negative uh, press time. He said, in the year we lost Muhammad Ali, down goes Frazier. <laughs> um, so that was the first thing, that people still don't like Berman. But the second thing, people were really buzzing about the foot in the box live stream yeah we were on air for over two and a half hours um have 183 views on that youtube video now um so i uh, appreciate everyone watching 
And uh, you can st- you can go back and watch it if you yeah. like. Well, I wanted to give people uh, kind of a taste for what they missed, so I'm going to play a clip from that now. Oh wow! All right, my trivia, and uh, let's do a quick update. Uh, looks like Adam Duvall is at seven homers, about halfway through his round. Stanton has already advanced to the finals, and then Frazier still has to hit. Anyways, getting into home run trivia. Can you guys name the home run leaders at each position? Uh, career numbers. It's a lot of positions. Uh, well, let's go maybe go for some under the radar. We all know Bonds is in left, and uh, Jeff Kent is at second. So let's maybe go uh, catcher, right field, and first base. So can you tell me both the all-time leader and then the the active the player who's still active that has the most home runs. Ortiz is probably at first, right? Well, let's start with, start with catcher. Okay. Which catcher has the most home runs all time? Are we doing center field first? Uh, we're <laughs> Cat, catcher. Based on my memory, I would say Javi Lopez, but I know that's not true. Uh... He's in the top ten. Whoa, that is fine. This player played the majority of his career at catcher. I know the Hall of Fame as a catcher. Mike Piazza? That's correct. Wow. Now, can you, you guys take a stab at the active home run leader for catchers? Tyler Flowers. Oh. He plays in the Amer- he plays in the American League East. McCann? Yep, Brian McCann. Wow. I was gonna get someone like Pierzinski who's been playing for like thirty years. Brian McCann is fifteenth all time then Mike Napoli seventeenth. All right, so that, that gives you a taste of the riveting nature of yes. the live stream. If you want to hear uh, the answers to other trivia questions, uh, go back and watch it as well. Yeah, I hadn't – so in case you missed it, uh, during the live stream I lost a bet and had to run and get Peter ice cream from a ice cream shop here in town. And uh, so I, I was off for the last, oh, I don't know, 45 minutes. It took forever. Um, the establishment will go unnamed, but I was pretty upset. I waited in line forever. Anyway, so I hadn't watched the last 45 minutes until work the next day. And it was, you went back, you went back and watched. I did. Yeah. You went through your whole, uh, baseball book collection and then looked for like five minutes for your, um, top 50 movies, but couldn't find yeah, it. The list, yeah. So I agree. Shawshank Redemption is definitely number one. Great. Do you go back and watch when I revealed your deepest, darkest secret? I never went back and watched that, no. Probably should do that. Thanks to everyone for uh, for viewing that, all 183 of you. Uh, to the two people that downvoted us on YouTube, shame on you. Shame on you. <laughs> for a while, for a while. Berman's one of them. For a while, we were no positives, but two downvotes. I think we got, we picked up one. Two. Two. Yeah. They, so they, we're they even. Evened out, yep. Okay, uh, one last uh, All Star Game thing, Paul. I've been uh, 
uh, pumping up Chris Bryant, hitting a home run off Chris Sale on Twitter. Mm-hmm. Little known fact is that Chris Sale actually has to go by KRIS <laughs> now. What have you What have you thought of my uh, my tweets? Well, that uh, your tweets have elicited a uh, listener question. Uh, Scott from Chicago uh, emailed in and said, uh, "Your Twitter account has had some banter regarding the dinger Chris Bryant hit off Chris Sale in the All Star game. Would you be able to find the career stats for Chris Bryant versus Chris Sale?" And at first, I thought um, Scott was just generally, um, genuinely curious. Like he didn't know the answer. Like, would that be possible to find those numbers? But then after looking it up uh, and seeing that um, Bryant is 0 for 6 with 6 strikeouts, uh, I am assuming that Scott knew the answer to the question. Yeah. Yep, 0 for 6, 6 strikeouts, and then first pitch home run. I feel like the All-Star break was um, kind of like a coming out party for Bryant. Going, yeah. in, going into the break, he's a lot of people's MVP in the first half, and then the home run. Agree, he, disagree? Uh, yeah, I mean, I guess I, I knew he was awesome, but maybe for the average fan, they didn't know. That's the beauty of the All-Star game. Yep. It can be a coming out party. All right, uh, some other things. Uh, no Matt Bush update this week because he didn't pitch. Uh, we're recording this actually on Saturday, day before we normally do, and he did not pitch in Friday's game against the Cubs at Wrigley. Uh, so we'll be back next week with that. Uh, trade deadline. Action, Drew Pomeranz of the Padres got traded to the Red Sox for one of their better pitching prospects. And uh, Drew Pomeranz was drafted by Paul in our trade deadline game back on Memorial mm-hmm. Day. We didn't talk about it last week, but you, Aaron Hill was traded to the Red Sox last before last podcast. And Yep, so I think I have, uh, I guess we each have two, two yeah, players. That you we're have drafting. James Shields and Aaron Hill, and I have uh, Eric Johnson and Pomeranz, yeah. Yeah, I didn't like the trade for the Red Sox. And it seemed like that was kind of the general sentiment. But the too desperate. Yeah, the guy they traded, Anderson Espinosa, was uh the fifteenth best prospect according to baseball prospectus and the fourth best pitcher. So that's just a lot to give up for a guy in Pomerantz who uh hasn't really established himself as a um as a true like top end starter. He's had a good year this year, but he's and never they- don't they get him for a couple of years now? They do, but he's never pitched, I think, more than, what, 110 innings in a season? I don't know. I guess it could work out, but... They should have just signed Rich Hill. Yeah. You know, one year, $7 million. Yeah. yeah. He was great for them last year. Dave Dombrowski is aggressive, if nothing else. Uh, the Astros made a big signing, Paul. You you were talking yes. about Guriel a couple weeks Yulieski ago. Yulieski Guriel uh, got five years, 49. That's less than... I believe you said his name was Guriel on... Yeah, that podcast. less than um, I thought and Dave Cameron thought. So, um, what'd you say you got? Five years, forty nine million. He's thirty two. Did you say that? Mm-hmm. Okay, yep. it's older than I thought. Um, you Darvish and Garrett Cole, both coming off the DL. Yep. Uh, but one one more thing on Guriel. Uh the Astros' best prospect, Alex Bergman. Uh, he's the fourth best prospect in baseball according to Baseball Prospectus. At their newest rankings at the All-Star break. Um, there's nowhere for him to play now because he's a third baseman slash shortstop. You've got Correa at short, Altuve at second, and uh seems to be Guriel at third. Um, and A.J. Reed is a big-time prospect at first base. Really? Yeah. Um, yeah, so it seems like a log jam. And I actually... Had forgotten just how good Altuve and Correa are. Um, 
Correa is 22. We're about to turn 22. Play shortstop. Has been great the last two years now. Altuve, second baseman. Do you know how old he is, Paul? I'd guess 29. 26. Wow. Yeah, he's an MVP candidate May this of, year. May of 1990 is when he was born. He's been fantastic this yes. year. So I was thinking of like the best duos in baseball. Uh, might do a blog post on this. Uh, would you rather have Correa and Altuve going forward or Bryant and Rizzo or some other duo? Hmm, that's a good question. Uh, I thought of uh, Mookie Betts and Dander Bogarts or Betts and Jackie Bradley Jr. I'd probably go Altuve and Correa just because of the positions they play. The thing with Bryant is like he's versatile, but I think Correa could be just as versatile. Uh, you know what I mean? Like... They move Brian around to left and right and third. Well, I mean, shortstop is a kind of shortstop and center or like and catcher are your like positions you can't really. Yeah, I guess move guys around. Yeah, I'd go Correa and Altuve. What about you? Uh, I mean, I'm biased, so I'll go Bryant and Rizzo. Reason I thought about it a little bit is because Rizzo's contract is so good. Yeah, there. It just seems like their games are more stable going forward. Like, um. Altuve and Correa depend a little more on like athleticism, and um, neither neither guy hits for like a ton of power. Um, so if like their average dips or something, hmm. but uh, Rizzo and Bryant um, maybe just have a little more stable like approaches. Can't go wrong either way. Nope. All right. Um, you got anything else? Uh, no, I think that that covers it. Great. Uh, well, now is when we normally do our MacGyver in three minutes segment, um, but we are uh, we're switching it up. Uh, so before we get to our new segment, I should lay out the rest of the podcast for you. I do a bad job of doing that most weeks. Uh, so we've got a new segment followed by Out of the Box. Paul and I each have an article that we read this past week. Uh, Paul's got TWTW. What are we talking about? Um, whether you should um, want your top pitching prospect to be a lights-out reliever or an average starter. Say that again? Whether you would, like, I'm talking about Carson Fulmer in particular, whether you should want him to be a above-average starter or just a lights-out relief pitcher. Oh, wh- which one has more value? Correct. Okay. Yes, White Sox fans are very excited about their prize prospect, Carson Fulmer. Don't be hating. One, 1. 1.5 whip in, in double-A. It's a home run stadium. Yes. Uh, yeah, so TWTW, then we've got Sounds of the Game, looking at David Cohn's perfect game. And then uh, we have an interview this week with um, Rob Maines, writer for Baseball Prospectus. Paul and I both did that interview. Uh, it's rare that Paul jumps in for an interview, but we were both on that one. Uh, he, he was a great guy, so uh, very interesting uh, research that he's doing with Baseball Prospectus. Uh, and then we'll finish it out with Bottom of the Ninth. We have a big announcement regarding the next wave of Foot in the Box Summer Flicks. Um, but first, let's talk about our new segment. The newest segment on the Foot in the Box podcast is Switch Hitter, named about uh, two minutes ago. Two seconds ago, really. Yes, so Switch Hitter is the name of it. If we think of a better name, or if you think of a better name, We'll, we'll uh, make the change. But right now, switch hitter. So MacGyver in three minutes was a great segment. People really enjoyed it. But, um, you know, Paul and I got pretty burnt out on it. Just kidding. People hated the segment. Uh, 
So instead of recapping a MacGyver episode in three minutes, we are going to recap a uh, baseball-themed episode of a TV show mm-hmm. in roughly three minutes. Uh, yeah, we've, we've got a few initial ideas, um, but if you have a favorite baseball-related episode... Yeah, mo- you- I would say most TV shows kind of have uh, an episode where baseball is a core component. Um, and so uh, send us your uh, request. Uh, you could even watch it with us you know, during the week, and uh, we'll recap it on the next podcast. Uh, but our first one, Paul, you, it was your selection. Yes, uh, I went with Arrested Development, uh, Season 2, Episode 7, which the title of the episode is Switch Hitter. That's where we got the name for this segment. Yeah, so uh, I guess we can dive right in. We won't spend a ton of time recapping the episode, but um, in essence, there is a, a softball game between the Bluth Company, which is the company that the TV show is focused around. Michael Bluth is the son of um, George Bluth. Senior, yes. Yes. Uh, so the, the game is between the Bluth Company and a rival development company um, run by Stan Sitwell. Yes. Uh, who doesn't have any hair. Yep. Um, has fake eyebrows and uh, wears wigs. Um, Michael's brother, Job, is... Uh, goes back and forth throughout the episode. Apparently he's the best softball player in the family. Uh, he initially switches teams and plays for Stan Sitwell's team, uh, but um, is convinced by um, by Michael Bluth to throw the game. until because, the, because Stan just wants him for his softball abilities. Yes, until the end of the game when Stan convinces him that uh, that, that isn't the case and that he uh, loves him just the way he is. So it's kind of a um, pseudo father-son type moment. Job decides that he really wants to win the game for Stan. Uh, he's up. It's a 6-6 game and apparently the last inning, and he hits a walk-off inside the park home run, which uh, got me thinking, has that ever really happened in baseball? And sure enough, uh, three years ago, 2013, uh, the Giants beat the Rockies on a walk-off inside the park home run, and I believe uh, Pete has that clip for us. Pagan swings and it's a high drag to right field and deep. This one is hit really well. It is off the bottom of the wall in deep right center field. Crawford coming around third. He'll score. Pagan coming to third. And Flannery's going to send him. Here comes the relay. Pagan slides. He's safe. It's an inside the park home run. And the Giants win it 6-5. to five. My goodness. Pagan records Major League Baseball's first walk-off inside the park home run since Ray Sanchez did it for Tampa Bay back in 2004. Yeah, so that was uh, Angel Pagan inside the parker 2013. Uh, And uh, to end this segment, like every future switch hitter segment, uh, we'll just end with a clip from the show. Uh, So this is uh, George Sr. and his son Michael discussing uh, Job playing uh, for the rival San Sitwell softball team. Went to brag to his father. So apparently my ideas aren't so bad, and that comes from Sitwell himself. You let your ideas go to Sitwell? But uh, no, I give them to Job, who uh, works there now. You let Job go to Sitwell? What did I tell you? I told you told don't him not to let him go. I know, but my point is that I do all the work, Pop. Yeah, and he makes all the plays. Don't you understand? He was the best softball player in the league. Job was especially gifted at sacrificing his body for the play. 
Although at times even that wasn't enough. Why do you think Sitwell hired him? You can't do this. You're going to lose the game and you're going to lose the company and you can't do this. Come on, what are you saying? If I win the game, you're comfortable with me running the company? Yeah, that's what I'm saying. I'll win the game. And I'll show him that his little plan didn't work, all right? We can build houses, we can win games. That is what I want to hear. We can win games. Okay, that was Switch Hitter. Next up, we have Out of the Box. Uh, The article that I came across and I'd like to discuss this week is Cliff uh, uh, Corcoran's article from Sports Illustrated. Uh, he wrote an anti-All-Stars column. He does this every year, apparently. Um, he goes through and picks uh, the worst players at each position in Major League Baseball. And the kind of the stipulations for being on the list is that you're still a starter um, and that you're not a platoon player. And if you're a starting pitcher, you know you can't be demoted to the bullpen. So you have to be kind of entrenched at your position um, for your team and really bad as well. Um, so I won't go through the whole list, but Pete, any guesses initially on um, guys that might make the list? Prince Fielder. Yep, he's the DH. Um, any other guesses? Uh, let's see. Reds players, Braves players, uh, Przinsky or Flowers? Uh, no. Catcher? No, you were right on with the Reds, though. Brandon Phillips made the list. Okay. Um, the worst infielder uh, that he... Um, Highlights is Alexei Ramirez. Uh, he is at negative two war, um, according to baseball reference. That's the worst in baseball. Wow. Um, he's been a bad hitter, but then he's also been a terrible fielder and a bad base runner. Um, so he's the worst on this list at negative two war. Uh, the worst outfielder uh, is a Cuban outfielder for the Diamondbacks, Yasmani Tomas. Uh, he's at negative point four war. Uh, he's been a below average hitter. Um, on base percentage of 302 and a 451 slugging, but he's also been just um, brutal in the outfield. With him playing full time, the D-backs have gone from 15th in uh, defensive efficiency to 28th. Um, so obviously that's without AJ Pollock too. But yes, Manny Tomas is the worst outfielder, still starting. As you mentioned, uh, Prince Fielder is the DH, and then uh, the two pitchers. Rob Means, we'll talk about this in a second, but Francisco Liriano has been really bad for the Pirates at negative five war, and then Jared Weaver for the uh, for the Angels has been just as bad, negative five two. Uh, Weaver's fastball, uh, I think we've talked about this before, but you know what it averages? Uh, like eighty six, eighty three. Wow, yeah, eighty three miles per hour, which is the slowest non knuckleball pitcher. In the uh, in the big leagues, because of that, though, I think uh, at least I think of his performance as impressive. Mm. Like he's had, I think he threw a shutout. Yeah, in the game really. Like I think mm-hmm. he's getting it done with really bad stuff. Yeah, second lowest strikeout rate in baseball and the third highest home run rate, and he's got a five twenty seven ERA. So he's been bad, but yeah, I guess you're right. With an eighty three mile an hour fastball, it is pretty impressive that he's still a pitcher in the big leagues. Those were Cliff Corcoran's uh, anti-all-stars. Okay. Uh, my article this week comes from Rob Nyer. I saw it on Vice Sports, probably featured in other places as well. Uh, the article title is Not Enough Cooks. Has the vaunted Oakland A's front office become too insular for their own good? 
so Billy Bean uh, is, is seen as, um, you know, one of the best general managers in baseball um, and very well respected amongst people that care about stats and uh, just good front office uh, decisions uh, because of Moneyball and because of the success he's had with the A's, um, you know, on a very low payroll. Uh, but recently, in the last couple of years, the A's have been pretty bad. Um, and so Rob Nyer looks into this and uh, looks into one specific reason uh, this could uh, this could have happened. Uh, so Rob Nyer and Billy Bean have a relationship. Um, back in the early 2000s, Nyer says he would speak with Bean quite often, uh, mainly off the record, just shooting the breeze. So Nyer says that uh, back in 2002 or 2003, which was his last uh, substantial conversation with, with Bean, uh, he asked him what he thought about the Red Sox management's uh, apparent intention to build a sort of baseball brain trust, or in other words, just to hire a bunch of people to be in a front office. Um, and Nyer doesn't remember Bean's exact response, but he does remember him suggesting that there's a possibility of too many cooks stirring the pot. So just too many guys in the front office means it's not optimal. Nothing gets done. Um, and more than a decade later, um, Bean seems to feel the same way uh, in an article from Susan Slusser of the San Francisco Chronicle. Slusser says in this column, uh, they're very happy with the people they have, and Billy likes having a tight little group. It's just the way they operate. So the A's uh, just have 21 people listed in baseball operations, while teams like the Dodgers have 41, the Cubs have 31. Um, so the A's just have a really small baseball ops department. And the A's haven't been doing well. Since the All-Star break in 2014, uh, they have a record of 135 and 183. That's 48 games below 500. And in 2016, they're one of the worst teams in the American League at 39 and 51. Uh, specifically, uh, kind of, I think, the time where people started to question being uh, he made a couple moves that have turned out very poorly. Uh, Billy Butler, uh, the A's signed him before last year for, uh, for three years and $30 million. Just looked up Butler's numbers. Uh, he's negative 1.3 war uh, in 2015 and 2016. Just lost his starting uh, spot with the A's, and they still got one year and uh, um, some change left on that contract. So just a horrible deal, and people just... I think uh, at the time questioned why they did it, just like they do now. Mm -hmm. Other move was trading Josh Donaldson. He helped the A's uh, make it to the playoffs in 2014 when they lost to the Royals, um, the game where Lester and the bullpen imploded and the Royals made that huge comeback in the eighth inning. Um, but then they traded him in that offseason season. And they traded him to the Blue Jays. And with the Blue Jays, he won the MVP last year and uh, is a favorite to win it again this year. So uh, essentially being traded the most valuable player in baseball. Um, and I think he's not a free agent this year even, right? Mm, I'm not sure. So that he had a lot of control left, uh, team control. Traded him, and the prospects he's gotten back, only a couple of them have turned out to be usable players. One is... a kind of a fringe starter, starting pitcher, and the other one is a good prospect, a shortstop. But still, just you can really question why they traded Donaldson. So those are the moves you can point to as him being terrible. Uh, but Nyer points out that recently he actually has made some really good moves. 
Um, and so you can't uh, just kind of write being off. Um, he traded Samarja for Marcus Simeon, uh, White Sox trade, Paul. Um, if you could do it again, would you read, redo that deal? Um, Samarja yeah. was terrible with the White Sox last year, and Simeon yeah, seems I, like a really good uh I wouldn't do that trade. Um, Simeon uh, isn't all good, though. He's an awful defender. He was awful last year. He's been pretty bad this year too. Well, he's he's like a two-war player this year and last year even with the airs, he was yeah. uh he hits a lot of home runs as a player. Um yeah, I would definitely not do it if I had to do it over again. Yep, so that was one of the moves that was good and then he signed Rich Hill like we mentioned earlier to a one-year 7 million dollar deal and uh it looks like they're going to be able to trade him for a lot of good young players at the trade deadline this year uh because uh just the price of pitching is so high. And uh, the question that Nair presents is, uh, you know, is Bean's philosophy that a small, tight-knit group of front office uh, personnel, is that the way to do it? Or do you need more personnel in this stat-crazy environment? And he ends the article with a quote from an American League executive. Um, That executive says, uh, I simply can't say whether the A's have enough analysts or not, because I don't know their processes but given all the work we have on our plate, sometimes more cooks enable you to discover a better recipe more quickly. Um, yeah, so that's that's the article. That's a good good one by Nyer. I'm always intrigued by Billy Bean. Uh, always kind of root for him to do well, just because of Moneyball. Uh, but it seems like uh, he might need to change his philosophy. Yeah, I do feel like we've kind of kept our podcast just you and I because we prefer the more sure. t- the tight knit group versus. Yeah, we've the... kept the listener base small because we, <laughs> we don't enjoy a lot of listeners. Yeah, I mean, like with Bean, if if he's the one signing off on every decision, sort of like Kenny Williams is with the White Sox, then I think it makes sense that there wouldn't be that you wouldn't need thirty or forty people, right? Because Bean's making every decision; everything's going up through him. And if he's, I guess, sort of likes that model, then it mm-hmm. would. I guess the question would be is like is he receptive to information contrary to what he Well I think believes Nyer's point is just uh that more people in baseball operations allows you to just research more stuff. Yeah. Um and so it's not so much that other people need to make the decisions. Uh you know, it's fine to have like a Theo Epstein making all your decisions or signing off on things, but there's a limit to the amount of information that Epstein can get if you're not hiring more people sure so it's it's not really like who's making the decisions it's what information is being what information is it getting if i'm sure uh, yeah i guess my point is like is he receptive to that information sure i don't know i don't know why he wouldn't be though yeah i mean billy bean we can assume that he would be yeah i I think one thing nair didn't talk about is just the financial constraints that the a's have yeah that was the point i was going to talk about you know the dodgers have 41 cubs have 31 those teams make a lot more money um so maybe maybe more interns is the way to go. Mm-hmm. Hire us. Hire us. If the A's offered you a like a base level internship next year, would you take it? No way. What? I have a wife and a kid and a job here in send Kate back Central to, Illinois. Send Kate back to teaching. A base level internship. Yes. So does that mean like twenty thousand dollars? Uh minimum wage. Living in Oakland. Yeah, no thanks. You don't have to live in Oakland. I can live anywhere. I mean, you have to you have to be there. I could live work. in San Francisco. That's so much cheaper. Yep. Okay, that was out of the box. Next up, we have TWTW. 
when you can put some of those categories, you know, you got your OBPS and all that and the VORPs, when they can put in TWTW and then interface those numbers with TWTW under that category, then you might have something cooking. What, what, what TW is? Yeah, what is that? That's the will to win. All right, as I mentioned in our intro uh, for my TWTW segment this week, I wanted to talk about um, the decision of um, whether you convert your prize pitching prospect into a top-end reliever or a above-average starter. And I thought of this because the White Sox just called up Carson Fulmer, who was a starter in college. Peter and I actually saw him a little over a year ago pitch here in Champaign. Yep. Pitched against uh, Illinois and um, the Super Regionals. So he was drafted as a starter, but uh, as he's progressed in the minors for the last year, more and more people have been convinced that he's uh, really uh, a reliever. He could be a top-end reliever uh, as opposed to an average starter. And I'll read um, Tom Fornelli, who's a uh, White Sox writer. He writes this uh, yesterday, actually. So it's not even that I don't think he could be a starter as much as I'm of the opinion that he could be a very good, possibly even elite reliever, whereas I think he'd be a back-end of the rotation starter. Both have their uses, obviously, but with bullpens becoming more and more important, I'm of a mind where I'd rather have the possibly elite reliever than the mediocre starter. So I wanted to kind of dig into that and actually, you know, see if the math checked out whether choosing to have a dominant guy out of the pen over a mediocre force starter makes sense. Um, and there's obviously a bunch of different ways you can look at this and look at the value that each brings to the table. But I wanted to focus on the money component just for the sake of time on our podcast. Um, so for the next three or four seasons, Carson, Fa- Carson Fulmer will make um, right around half a million dollars um, as the league minimum. Um, the White Sox obviously have control of him for that time span. And so for them, uh, you know, a team fairly handicapped um, by money, you know, they rank, I think, 20th before this, this season in payroll, where would he have the most value? And so the way I looked at this is uh, the average salary for the um, top 20 relief pitchers this year and the top and the, sorry, the way I looked at this was looking at the top 20 relief pitchers and their average salary and then uh, the average salary for a fourth starter. Um, so, Pete, do you have any guesses for what? And I, I looked uh, at War Fangraphs War for the first half of the season to determine the top top twenty, and then the fourth starters. Very confused as to what you're doing here. Uh, so, I guess the way to simplify it would be: what is the the average salary for the top twenty pitchers in relief pitcher War so far this year? But shouldn't you just be looking at what is like where he's most valuable, where he's going to give you the most wins? Uh, I guess why are you looking at it from a salary no. perspective? Because like if uh, as a starting pitcher, you know David Price just got um, a massive contract, yeah. and so if there's a a ton of money, if if it requires you to spend a ton of money for a really good pitcher, and you can get a Carson Fulmer Carson Fulmer for a half million dollars to be you know, a three or four star with that. Does that make sense? Oh, gotcha. Um, so what am I guessing? The average salary for the top 20 relief pitchers so far this year, $5 million, 3.6 million. And then the average salary for a fourth starter, 
nine million. It's actually much lower than I thought. Uh, it's four point oh three million. You, you looked at all thirty fourth starters. No, I took Fangraphs War, and this is fairly arbitrary, but it took uh, pitchers ninety one through one twenty on that list. <laughs> uh, so I just wanted to get this is by far the best TWTW. I just wanted to get ballpark numbers. Uh, and then, you, you know, if you look at that top 20 list of elite relief pitchers, you know, led by a guy like Dylan Batances, who's like Fulmer making league minimum, uh, he's actually so far this year has 2.2 war as opposed to a fourth starter like an R.A. Dickey, who's at 0.7. So I think I went into this uh, thinking... Um, but the fourth starter, like, is Kyle Hendricks the Cubs' fourth starter? Like your goal isn't to get fourth starter like quality. Your goal is to get like five right. of the best pitchers. Yeah, I mean, just the reality of it though is that that isn't true for most teams. Like it, it is pretty well spread out in terms. Of, like every team has a a fourth and a fifth starter who obviously aren't as good as one through two okay. or one through three. Um, anyways. Uh, I just came out of, I went into it thinking I really want Fulmer to be a starter. I think that's where he has the most value for the White Sox. Uh, come to find out that actually a, a top end relief pitcher, you know, you could make the argument that um, they earn about as much as a, uh, a fourth starter and they contribute more value to the team. So I think you can make an argument either way, I guess, is, is where I've landed. But you're going to have to sign. Like the, if Fulmer's not your, your fourth starter, you're going to have to sign someone. And if you want that pitcher to be good, he's going to cost way more than that. Like the alternative isn't, oh, let's give a, a young guy in the system a chance because the White Sox don't have any other Right, but pitchers. then vice versa. If he's a fourth starter, then you would have to sign uh, and a I, relief pitcher. I think the price of a relief pitcher is way less than the price of a... Um, well, that, I mean, that was the whole point of the exercise is that it's actually a pretty comparable price for a top-end But you're pitcher. just, you're not, not on the market. You're just, you're looking at uh, the current guys, I'm saying White Sox reality is, all right, this offseason, do we make Fulmer a starter and sign a reliever, or do we make Fulmer a reliever and sign a starter? The price of a reliever on the market is way less than the price of a starter that you'd want on the market. Maybe. I mean, like you're, you you just you just tracked like the price of guys. I get what you're saying, but I think the... Like the Cubs, Hen- Hendricks doesn't make a lot of money because he's... Sure. I mean, they brought him up through the system. But if you if you look at, like, four starters, Dickey's making uh, $12 million. Last offseason, or Kenley yeah, James... But you wouldn't... Dickey's, Kenley, Dickey's a really bad pitcher. Right. No, I'm, you, I'm saying, like, the cost for a four starter and the cost for an elite pitcher on the market is actually pretty similar. I mean, if you look recently, so Andrew Miller got $9 million. That's essentially what James Shields is making. He signed uh, before last year before 2015 so you're okay if you have but, a if but, you have a pitcher that would make but a Jack, above average starter Ed, or edwin jackson he would not be an elite reliever so it's andrew miller like would be a better starter than a, like a edwin jackson type right so i'm talking specifically if you have a really good prospect like an aaron sanchez or carson fulmer and he's he'd be really really good as a relief pitcher or a just a decent starter above average starter what would be the right decision? So obviously it's a very I mean, unique. I get what you're trying to do. I just don't think the way you did it is the best method. How about, I'll write a blog post and explain my reasoning. I mean, I get your reasoning. I just don't think you, I don't know. It's a flawed, flawed way, but agree to disagree. 
All right, that was TWTW. Next up, we have Sounds of the Game. Okay, uh, this is Peter with Sounds of the Game. Uh, this week, we're going to look back uh, on this day in baseball history. Uh, so if you're listening to this on Monday, uh, this happened 17 years ago, July 18th, 1999. David Cohn threw a perfect game. It was the 16th perfect game in baseball history. And uh, some cool things that made it um, even more memorable. It was Yogi Berra Day at Yankee Stadium. And um, uh, Don Larson threw out the first pitch to Yogi Berra. Don Larson famously threw a perfect game in the 1956 World Series. It's the only perfect game in postseason history. And uh, was the only no-hitter in postseason history until Roy Holiday. Uh, a few years ago. Uh, so the Yankees played the Expos at Yankee Stadium. Uh, the announcers for this game actually are Tim McCarver and Bobby Mercer. I think it's Bobby Mercer from my research. Uh, but Tim Car- Tim McCarver is who you'll hear from most, and apparently he was a Yankees broadcaster for a little while. Uh, but here is uh, the last out of David Cohn's perfect game. Orlando Cabrera, 0 for 2 this afternoon, no kidding. (laughs) One strike. Outside, ball one, one and one. Yankee ball club despite the perfect game than David Cohn. He is the spokesperson for this ball club. Brian Cashman, the general manager, looking on. They respect him. They love him. And what a deal the Yankees made when they brought David Cohn to New York Yankee Stadium. Yankee Stadium on Yogi Berra Day. The festivities started with tears and backslapping, and it ends with tears and backslapping. And Tim, this game was started today with the first pitch being thrown by Don Larson. 
to Yogi Berra to commemorate 1956 when Larson pitched the only perfect game in postseason history, and it was started today by that pitch. You got to have a special feeling for Joe Girardi, and I know you guys feel as much a part of that. You were involved in calling a couple of no-hitters of your own, not perfect games, but a couple of no-hitters. So you got to imagine what Joe Girardi's going through now in the jubilation. But you know what? I can't. I can't imagine that. After retiring the first 26 men, Orlando Cabrera pops out, and Don Larson, the first to ever pitch a perfect game at Yankee Stadium, watches the last guy who pitched the perfect game at Yankee Stadium. Uh, Tim giving the cold shoulder to... Uh... Yeah, doesn't, doesn't, even, doesn't even really can't, explain why. Can't imagine what it's like, even though he's thrown uh, or ca- caught other no hitters. Um, Paul, that was the 16th in uh, baseball history. At that point, uh, there's 23 right now. Can you name the seven that have happened since David Cohn in 1999? Man, um, Phil Umber. Yes, 2012. The first of three in 2012. Uh, was Heston's last year a no-hitter a perfect game? There's not been any since 2012. Perfect games in 12. Man, I don't know. Any hints? You can't name any of the other seven? <laughs> I don't think so, actually. Wow. So Felix Hernandez... 2012, Matt Cain, 2012, Roy Holiday, 2010, Dallas Braden, 2010, Mark Burley, 2009. Yep, I should have got that one. And Randy Johnson, 2004. Uh, Randy Johnson was 40 years old when he did it. Yeah, the Burley one I should have got. I'm not a big, uh, I don't remember uh, no-hitters and perfect games very well, in case you haven't noticed by now. (laughs) Or anything well. I mean, without looking at a list, you would have gotten those right, you think? Uh, I would have gotten Burley... Hernandez, Umber, and uh, yeah, I would have gotten like five of them. Hmm. Braden's happened on Mother's Day, so that was special because his mom had died a few years earlier uh, uh, because of cancer, and so that was a special moment for him. Okay, uh, so that was Sounds of the Game. Next up, our interview with Rob Maines. This week's guest on the podcast is Rob Maines. You can find his work at Baseball Prospectus, like Paul and I did this past week. Uh, you can also read him at banishedtothepen.com. And you can follow him on Twitter, uh, like we did, at cran underscore boy. Welcome to the podcast, Rob. Thanks for having me, guys. Uh, so first, uh, before we get to kind of your, your articles, uh, I wanted to ask your Twitter bio reads, Former Wall Street guy aspiring to just watch baseball games, decrepit triathlete, grumpy old man. Uh, can you explain uh, your uh, your life uh, in baseball and outside of baseball to us before we begin? Yeah, I, as a matter of fact, I was just looking at that tonight. I got to knock off the grumpy thing because I don't feel that that's that's a characterization that anyone but my wife would necessarily agree with. 
But um, I spent a career on Wall Street, a few years doing systems and programming, but most of it I was a research analyst following healthcare stocks, if anybody would care about that. <laughs> and I stopped doing that largely to follow baseball games, you know, to watch them on MLB.tv because I live kind of in the middle of nowhere, so there's no local club. And I just sort of found my way towards uh, doing the research and analytics and was fortunate enough to be able to write for Baseball Prospectus. I'm having a gas doing it. The triathlete thing, I've been doing triathlons for a really long time, well past the point where my body told me to stop, put it that way. Uh, so uh, when did you start writing for writing about baseball? I guess it was like 2013, 14 or so. Okay. 2014, I started to write for um, Fangraph's community page. And then 2015, I started writing for Banished to the Pen. And 2016, started with uh, BP. Okay. And you're are you a Pirates fan based on some of your writing? Yeah, probably more than any other club. I uh, I've done fantasy long enough that sort of, has washed out any strong team allegiances. Sure. But I'm married to one of the bigger Andrew McCutcheon fans in upstate New York, so I follow Fox <laughs> pretty closely. Hey, I, I picked McCutcheon to win the MVP this year, and he's been not very good. Yeah, there's this great stat. I can't remember whether I tweeted it or not, that if you take the top four outfielders by play appearances for the Marlins and the Pirates, the bottom two by far, by OPS or anything like that, um, at least as a couple weeks ago, were Stanton and McCutcheon. Wow. It's not good. No. All right. Well, uh, I picked uh, three different articles that I really enjoyed and um, just wanted you to kind of elaborate on those. So the first one, on June 14th, uh, you wrote an article about the most important stat in determining a hitter's value. Uh, and that came out of a kind of a baseball Twitter uh, phenomenon when – uh, one team asked, did a Twitter poll and asked what, what the best stat was, and they included sabermetrics as right. one of them. Yeah. Uh, but OBP won the poll, and uh, I think most kind of baseball stat-oriented people would have would have said that as well, myself included. But you wrote about how slugging percentage actually recently is a better indica- indicator of a hitter's value. Uh, two questions. Why do you think uh, we're so obsessed with on-base percentage? And uh, why is slugging percentage the better indicator of a a hitter's value? Yeah, I'll tell you, that piece is by far the most controversial thing I've written. I don't really look for controversy. Um, But I got, if you go through the the comments, I got kind of challenged on it on BP. I brought it up once on Banished to the Pen, got sort of challenged there. But if you do the numbers, you know, that's how it works out. I think the reason why we all look at OBP couple of things. First of all, obviously, Moneyball kind of popularized the idea that <clears throat> at least 15 years ago, um, on-base percentage was a under-recognized stat in term, and more importantly, there's a market inefficiency. You could get good OPP guys for cheap. It would help you win ball games, and you could maintain the type of budget that the Oakland A's did. But even before then, Bill James, when he first was doing uh, kind of his seminal research with baseball abstracts, he looked back historically and said that on-base percentage is better correlated to run scoring than any of the other 
you know, basic available stats, mm-hmm. whether it's OBP slugging batting average. And that, that is still the case. What has changed though, and remember James started writing 30 plus years ago, is that if you look at the post World War II period, slugging percentage with a few years of, um, exceptions has been the better correlated stat. Not by enough, but by, or not, not by a large amount, but by enough that I think if you had to pick one statistic of the three slash lines, batting average, on-base percentage, slugging percentage, the most indicative of determining a batter's worth, the slugging percentage, simply because if you do the math, it's better correlated to run production than anything else. But, um, you know, on-base percentage isn't bad. Certainly some of the more advanced stats like sabermetrics are good. But if I had, if you were to say to me I could have just one number, the number I take is slugging percentage because in the last, what, 70 years, that's been the one that's determined run scoring. And you kind of pointed out in the article that especially in times when scoring isn't as high, slugging percentage is a bigger deal. Yeah, the, the last sort of heyday for on-base percentage was during the steroid era. And the idea then is that since you had kind of eight in the National League, nine in the Na- American League guys who could hit the ball out of the park, the way you'd score a lot of runs is just get guys on base in front of them. So that's when on-base percentage had a better correlation than slugging does. But now when, you know, that two-run shot may be the margin of victory, slugging percentage has been the dominant stat for several years now. Yeah, and then tagging on to... Uh, talking about slugging percentage home runs. On July 7th, you wrote about the increase in home runs, and that's something that we've talked a lot about on the podcast, and I feel like a lot of people are talking about. Effectively, the Wild recently had a, a podcast on that, um, and you laid out the data to show that the number of multi-home run games by teams is the highest it's been since since 01. Um, do you have any theories? Have you cracked the code as to uh, why we're seeing uh, so many home runs this year? Yeah, you know, in fairness, the real good research on that was done by Rob Arthur and Ben Lindbergh at 538. I think it was in March of this year. They wrote a great article going into the way that home runs all of a sudden spiked in the second half of last year. I mean, almost like a switch was turned on. And what I pointed out is that whatever switch was turned on, it's remained on. Um, Alan Nathan, the... um, noted baseball physicist. Yeah, he's has, been on our podcast before. He's a yeah. he, he, we live in the same uh, same town, same college town. Okay, great. Yeah, he's he's a that, what I really like about him, I lasted as a physics major for about 3 semesters <laughs> and he makes it all really approachable. Yeah. And that's not easy to do when you're talking about physics. Um, you know, he pointed out that that spike in home runs was correlated with an increase in exit velocity on hits by about a mile an hour. And that sort of explains it. But, you know, the, 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 the chicken or the egg here is, okay, but what caused the increase in exit velocity? Is it that batters are giving it up more? Is it that pitchers aren't locating as well? Is it something with the ball? Nobody really knows what it is. Yeah. I saw Manfred was grilled about the balls at the yeah. uh, all-star game, but he, I saw like 15 people tweet about his quote that has nothing to do with the baseballs. Yeah, and, you know, if it did have something to do with the baseball, would you expect him to say anything else? I'm not, like, feeding into a conspiracy, but I didn't find that to be, you know, a definitive, um, you know, thing where we can just say, oh, okay, well, that that can't be it. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, I agree. It's so weird that it it was, like, one specific kind of moment 
where it all switched. Yeah. I think that's like the biggest thing that feeds into the um, the narrative that you know something happened outside of just hitters hitting the ball harder. The the last uh, last article I wanted to ask you about uh, the the piece you wrote this past week uh, entitled Francisco Liriano Chase Rates and Global Trade. Uh, can you explain what Liriano uh, Chase Rates and Global Trade have in common? Yeah, you, you can tell I worked on Wall Street. <laughs> I, I, I bring around to a trade thing. Well, Francisco Liriano, anybody who follows the Pirates or probably just the National League knows, has been a really good pitcher for three years and just abysmal this year. And this is also not a secret. It's been covered by some other smart guys. Um, one of his problems this year has been that he's a pitcher more than just about anybody else in the majors who has lived by throwing pitches just outside the this, this strike zone, getting batters to chase at it, and inducing as a result, because they're hitting balls, basically, uh, weak contact that turns into ground balls, it turns into outs. And the biggest difference in Liriano this year versus pre- previous years is that guys aren't swinging at his pitches outside the strike zone. They're swinging about 5% fewer pitches outside the zone, which means that Balls where he might have gotten a strike or might have gotten weak contact, he now all of a sudden has a ball. His walk rate spiked, his strikeout rate's gone down, and he's been forced to hit in the throw to the zone, and so he's gotten tattooed. And what I found was that it's not just Liriano. League-wide, there's a trend of batters are swinging at fewer pitches outside of the strike zone, and as a result, um, they're having more success, but it's particularly hurting pitchers like Liriano who have lived by getting pitchers to chase outside the zone. Dallas Keuchel is another one, and, you know, Keuchel's had an awful year. And there's several other guys in that top five uh, of guys who with the lowest percentage of pitches in the strike zone. They were successful pitchers in 2015, and they're getting hammered in 2016. So what I decided to do is said, well, gee, what kind of hitters get benefit from this? Is it guys who get pitched outside the zone a lot? Is it guys who used to swing at a lot of pitches outside the strike zone, and now they don't. Um, and what I found is that there's not a simple answer like there is for pitchers. Certain types of pitchers are getting really hurt by the trend towards fewer swings on pitches outside the strike zone, but there aren't any types of hitters you can point to and say, yeah, that's the type of guy who does better. And the, the example I pointed to in the article is that there's no hitter in baseball this year who has cut down his rate of swings on pitches outside the strike zone um, more than Todd Frazier. And he's having a worse year offensively in 2016 than he did in 2015. So my analogy was that proponents of global trade will tell you that one of the reasons why trade tends to be unpopular is that it's a system where the benefits are diffuse and uh, costs are concentrated, which is to say if you close down a clothing factory somewhere and you put 300 people who are making $50,000 a year out of work, that means that the economy is down $15 million. But if as a result of that, everybody in the country pays 50 cents less a year for clothes on average, you know, some people more, a lot of people won't even know the difference, but that's a benefit of $150 million. So it's 10 times the benefit is the cost. But the thing is, the benefit's diffuse. Nobody really notices it a lot. While the 300 people lost their jobs, 
they're going to vote against uh, trade going forward. And I said, this is kind of the analogy of what we're seeing in baseball with this thing of swinging outside the strike zone. The benefits are diffuse. There aren't hitters that you can say, hey, here's a guy who stops swinging and pitches outside the strike zone. Therefore, he's doing a lot better. Everybody's doing, on average, a little bit better. Some mm. are doing a lot better. Some, there's no difference. But the pitchers, absolutely. The guys who live by pitching uh, outside the zone are really feeling the pain this year. And so that was my kind of strained analogy I came up with. No, that's a, it's a great analogy. And uh, my next question might seem a little odd, but I'm just curious. You know, you seem to have um, – you, you seem to write about such a wide range of sort of baseball – uh, topics in terms of stati- the statistical side of things. What's sort of the um, your process for coming up with ideas? Is it you're watching a, a Pirates game or a game and you come up with an idea, you read someone else's work and think, man, I, I've never really looked into that before. What's sort of your your process for looking into um, the different topics you write about? You know, that's a great question because I, I find that to be the most challenging part of this. I mean, it's Sometimes you get an idea and you look something up and you find out there's nothing there and that's kind of a bummer. But what I I fear is just not coming up with ideas. And you're absolutely right. Especially if you watch television broadcasts, almost every broadcast, announcer's going to say something that just kind of sets off a bell. You say, oh, come on, is that really true? Like I was watching a game I wrote about this. Cliff Floyd talked about, what do you call it, like the... The, the lost art of the two-out RBI. <laughs> and so I looked it up, and here, here's a shock. There, there's as many two-out RBIs as there <laughs> ever were. You know, there's nothing like that. So Having to watch Hawk Harrelson for 81 games out of the year, I know exactly what you're talking about. Oh, my gosh, yeah. he That's a gift that keeps on giving. <laughs> so, you know, you can always get sort of cheap stuff from there. But if you read, I mean, one of the things that amazes me about following baseball now is there's so much good writing on the internet. Yep. You know, whether it's at my site, Baseball Prospectus, or my colleagues at Banish the Pen, or Fan Graphs, or Beyond the Box. I mean, there's just tons of real good research being done. And if you read some of that, you find something interesting, like the Liriano idea. Um, you know, I follow the Pirates. I read a good art- article by August Fagerstrom at Fan Graphs talking just about Liriano, and I said, that's interesting. I wonder if that applies to other pitchers as well. And that was kind of a lucky shot I took um, that it worked out. And I just, you know, there's there's a lot of things out there that kind of beg the question of, huh, I wonder if there's more there. Um, Sam Miller uh, wrote a really interesting piece a while ago about how he thought that the standard for qualifying for the ERA, which is one inning pitched, per uh, team game, so it's basically 162 innings a year, needs to get relaxed because there are fewer and fewer pitchers who pitch that many uh, innings. So mm-hmm. I started to do some work in looking at why that is and whether it's because pitchers aren't going as frequently or when they're going they're pitching fewer innings or guys tend to get pulled earlier. Um, there, there's just a lot of things out there that um, – not only is there, you know, there's the sources to uh, get the ideas from, but there's all the data sources like baseball reference, fan graphs, and baseball perspectives you can draw the uh, conclusions from. Last question. Uh, I just noticed that you do a pretty good job of dialoguing with uh, commenters on your articles, especially at, at BP. Um, you mentioned the Alan Nathan comment and then some other uh, maybe less uh, less nice commenters on other articles. 
do you feel like that's an important part of, of writing um, about baseball and especially in kind of a, um, a stat-driven sort of way that you write about baseball? Is it important to connect with readers that way? Absolutely. Hey, look, this isn't like the comment section in your local paper where you've got like every Yahoo just calling you names and stuff. <laughs> every, you know, at these sites, this is such a pleasure because my, my wife gets involved in stuff where there's nasty comments. All, you know, the people who are writing here, we're all, we're all looking for the same thing. We're all trying to, you know, enjoy the game of baseball using numbers and trying to find out new and interesting things. So if I can engage with people who have that same interest, that's, you know, it's good for the site, good for me, good for them. It's, it's, and it's really a pleasure. Absolutely. Well, we appreciate you, uh, you joining us and, uh, look forward to reading more of your work in the future. I appreciate the time and, uh, you guys keep up the good work. Thanks to Rob for making the time for us. Really fascinating stuff. Um, that he's writing about at Baseball Prospectus. Would encourage you to go follow him on Twitter at Cran underscore boy, C-R-A-N underscore B-O-Y. All right, bottom of the ninth. Uh, first up, Paul, we have a, a big announcement. Uh, second edition of A Foot in the Box Summer Flicks. Uh, so last year we did this promotion around the same time in early August, uh, late July, early August. Uh, last year's theme was... Uh, fun bad baseball movies, and we ended up watching a uh, little big league and Eddie's Million Dollar Cookoff for mm-hmm. the two winners. Um, this year, we the theme is uh, baseball movies from the 1990s, and uh, we had actually announced the uh, uh, candidates, uh, the selections um, on the live stream, so you can go back and watch that if you're curious with our friend David. So this year's uh, movie selections that you can choose from, um, and if we select you, um, randomly select you, um, we'll probably do that in a couple weeks on the podcast, pick the winners, but if we select you, uh, we'll send you a copy of this uh, movie, either in the mail or electronically, and then we'll watch it together and tweet about it. Um, so this year's movies are Angels in the Outfield, Rookie of the Year, A League of Their Own, Sandlot, The Scout, Mr. Baseball, For Love of the Game, Basketball, Soul of the Game, and Cobb. All those movies were from the 1990s. Uh, so we'll tweet out the link for you to enter, uh, instructions for how to enter later this week. Uh, it'll be on our website, footinthebox.com. But uh, essentially you'll just tweet us or email us or comments on the website with your selection, and then uh, we'll put all those in a hat and choose... Uh, a couple people randomly. Um, so yeah, excited for that. Mm-hmm. Any movie in particular you're hoping someone picks? Hmm, that's a good question. Uh, Angel in the Outfield is a favorite of mine. Um, I think Sandlot would be a fun, fun one. I have, I mean, I've seen it before, but not, not for a while. Um, basketball is kind of a fun one. Uh, a little, a little racy for a I've never seen uh, the Scout, Mister Baseball, or uh, basketball. Have you seen Cobb? Yeah, that either. It was a it was a pretty diverse group. Yep. I, mean, I uh, uh, hope that you participate. All right, uh, Paul, you're up with say my name. All right, real quickly here, our name is uh, Joe Rabbit this week. 
Joe Patrick Rabbit. Uh, he was born in 1900, and he was a left fielder for the Indians. Played in uh, two games, three plate appearances, one hit. So kind of a, a Moonlight Graham-ish story. Um, that was in the 1922 season. Uh, that would be the only season he played in the big leagues. Um, he did have uh, 250 steals in 12 minor league seasons. So uh, the name kind of caught on because he was so fast. Like, so know. it's a nickname? No, it's a real last name, Okay, but it just fit him well. Quick like a rabbit. Um, later in his career, he was convicted of assaulting his team's business manager underneath the stands during a game. That was in single A. So came across that during my research. So that's Joe Rabbit for you. Two games, a lot of steals, and assaulted his team's business manager, which I assume is like the general manager maybe. Yeah, I don't know. Didn't know how it worked. Or maybe in like in the twenties. The travel secretary or something. But. Yep. Okay, uh my Yahoo answer of the week. The question comes from Yahoo user the A's fan. And his uh, his question is, what is the best baseball movie? thought it was appropriate uh, to do this question the week that we announce uh, our summer flicks. No question here, uh, in my opinion. So the A's fan says, and this is the top answer as voted on by other Yahoo users, not many people know about this one, but it is my all-time favorite. It's called Little Big League. You have to watch it. You have to watch it funny and just an all-around great movie. Field of Dreams is also a good movie, but Little Big League is so much better. Little Big League is about a 12-year-old boy whose grandpa owns the twins. His grandpa dies, and he gives the boy the twins. He fires the manager, and he hires himself as the new manager. Nobody on the team really liked the idea at first, but then the team starts playing really good. I won't spoil the ending for you in case you wanted to watch it, but I highly suggest you do so. Highly is all caps there. Mm. Uh, Paul, uh, I'm guessing you disagree with. Uh, yeah, this, this I think user. I think Field of Dreams is by far the best baseball movie. I could see maybe The Natural, if you really like Robert Redford. It just it it it's really hard. Uh, I mean, like with any genre of movies, like the serious ones, you're going to think are better, like uh, from a film perspective. I but I would I would I think I enjoy like Little Big League, Rookie of the Year, Angel in the Outfield, those those sorts of movies. Uh, just as much, only it's like a different, hmm. different mood. Maybe, yeah. Yeah, you're right. I mean, the 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 more serious ones are more memorable. It's kind of a common narrative now that Field of Dreams doesn't hold up. Really, uh, our brother John feels that way, and then Bill Simmons. I heard him recently talk about how it doesn't really hold up. Hold up as in like they themselves enjoyed it once, but now don't enjoy uh, they, it as much. Like watching it now, it just uh, like the speech about baseball. Simmons was like, "Oh, that's not really true." about baseball in America anymore. Yeah. I don't, yeah, I disagree as well. I think it's great. I, w- I would be curious what Simmons and our brother John's favorite movies, baseball movies are. I think Simmons said Sandlot. I think it was on Katie Nolan's show. Hmm. Garbage time. Okay. Uh, last, lastly is pick your team. Uh, I had a very, um, strong lead on Paul going into the all-star break. Uh, my record so far this year is 57 and 31. Paul is 52 and 39. Uh, our teams from this past week, the Phillies and the Braves, uh, have only played one game. So we won't update it right now, uh, but we'll give you the update next week. Uh, Paul, who's your team for this following week? I'm going the Twins. They've won 7 out of 10, and 
I uh, I think they'll have a little little bump heading in the second half. Okay, I got the Blue Jays because they play bad teams. Okay, well that does it for this week's podcast. Next week we're actually off for vacation. It's the one week during the baseball season that we take off. Um, we'll be in South Haven, Michigan, um, but we'll have a lot of written stuff on our website or hope to. So uh, make sure to follow us on Twitter at a foot in the box, and then check out our website a foot in the box dot com. Um, can read all about the trade deadline uh, and some other fun stuff that uh, we'll write about. You can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Make sure to leave us a review there. It really helps get the word out to more people. And um, send us an email, like Scott did this past week, at afootinthebox at gmail.com, afootinthebox at gmail.com. I think that does it. Paul, do you have anything else before we take a two-week break? Nope. Pete, enjoy your week off. Listeners, uh, there are plenty of other baseball podcasting options. Effectively Wild being my favorite that you can listen to while we're out. And uh, just a reminder to keep a foot in the box. We'll talk to you in a couple weeks.